welcome back. This is series. T- I've got sorry, I've got biscuit in my throat. <laughs> Good start. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, you, and welcome back. This is series two of What on Earth. If you're new to the podcast, then every week we look at the past, present, and future of an environmental issue to try and work out what on earth is going on and what we can do about it. Because sometimes it can be really confusing. My name is Sarah, and I'm also here with Ross. Hello. He's our producer. He's been here the whole time. Yeah, and now I'm allowed to speak. <laughs> Thank you. No worries, anytime. So today, we're going to be talking all about planes. Mm, what about planes? We're going to be finding out why air travel is bad for the environment. Because apparently, if it was a country, it would be one of the top 10 emitters of CO2. Like the 10th worst country. Yeah. In, if, if planes were a country. If planes were a country. <laughs> So we're going to be finding out why they're so bad other than that and also what we can do about it because it can be really difficult to know other than just stopping flying, which obviously not everybody wants to do, what we can actually do to make a difference. So we're going to try and unmuddle that today. Mm. So Ross, I'm going to leave you here in the present. Oh, okay. I'm going to take a carbon neutral plane back to the past. There's going to be a plane noise now, I bet you. Humans have been trying to fly for a lot longer than you might expect, designing wings and gliders, studying birds way, way back before even da Vinci was alive. The first people who invented a successful aeroplane as we know it were the Wright brothers in 1903. People had tried designing planes before, didn't go so well for them. The Wright brothers are the guys who are credited with the design that we still use over a century later. Their aeroplane started life as a tiny wooden plane that could only carry one man. And then, only 10 years later, the world's first ever commercial flight took place and it took people from Florida to Russia. It only took 10 years for their design to go from a plane that carried one person a few hundred metres to something that literally crossed an ocean. And then, during the 1920s, when commercial air travel really took off, Planes could only carry about 20 people. They were slower than trains because they could only fly in the daytime. They weren't insulated, so they were really cold and noisy. And they couldn't fly that high because they didn't have a pressurised cabin. So basically you were just like scooting along, really not that high above the ground, freezing and going slower than a train. But they did serve champagne. It was very fancy. And then during World War I and the interwar years, technology really developed, obviously, because they were coming up with new technology for war. Uh, but that also kind of bled into commercial planes. And this was called the Golden Age of Flying. It was glam. It was basically like a private jet experience that celebrities get, but for you all the time. Obviously, not many people could afford to do it. The price of a ticket was astronomical at the time, uh, but they'd fixed the noisy and cold problem. They had sofas on planes. They had hams that were carved by the side of your seat and free drinks. Uh, It was basically a very fancy time for everybody and a long way from the no-leg room and microwave meals that we experienced today on an EasyJet flight. But this didn't last very long long. Pretty soon, flying was brought to the masses. Heathrow was finished in 1946, and then flights between London and New York became a daily occurrence. Technological expansion essentially changed everything, and by 1960, 100 million people had been in a plane. 
There is no doubt that the invention of flying has changed the world completely. We can travel from one side of the world to the other side of the world in less than 24 hours. But flying has this big environmental impact that we're really only starting to get our heads around now. So I'm going to jet back to the present where Ross is waiting with Leo from Possible to find out a little bit more. I am Leo Murray and I am a director and co-founder at Possible, climate change charity. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. And how do you know so much about planes and the environment? I, in a past uh, activist life, I was a co-founder of Plane Stupid, which was a direct action group that, um, you know, we did a lot of closing down airports, chaining ourselves to things. Uh, so it's very de jour again, that, that sort of thing yeah, right now. it's all come back around. It has, it's come <laughs> back around. Um, but yeah, we did it before it was fashionable. Um, and I haven't left the issue alone. What is the problem with flying and why is it bad for the environment? So you often hear statistics around how much of global emissions aviation is responsible for. It's not very much. Um, it's about 2.5% probably of carbon emissions. That's not the whole picture because um, emissions at height in the uh, upper atmosphere cause more warming than emissions at surface level. Um, no yeah, it's not that surprising that, but um, but that means that, you know, the 2% figure 2.5% underestimates it anyway but of course the context here is that you know if you compare this with something like I don't know um, agriculture emissions well everybody eats very few people fly yeah so you know it's being estimated it's probably not more than five percent of the world's population gets on a plane in a given year um, and it's probably only about a fifth of us that will ever get on a plane so what can we do about it? If we Can we stop people flying? Should people still be flying? So um, what you will get from industry and typically from politicians is a lot of what we call techno-optimism on this. Now, what, so uh, someone will come in and invent a magic plane yeah, that will save us. That's basically it. So, um, you know, that's, that's the first thing is technology is going to solve this problem. That's a default position. And I think it's, um, you know, it's sort of central to uh, the way our society works, actually, is that we just expect technology to just solve things for us. I've been working on this issue for long enough to have seen a lot of different technological solutions proposed to this and then just come and go, you know, and then disappear and never to be seen again. And um, there was a paper out a couple of years ago from a Swedish academic, uh, Stefan Gosling, um, describing aviation technology myths as actually like playing this very unhelpful role in like, sustaining a mythology that that tech is going to just come in and solve this problem but then none of these things ever actually coming to pass so electric planes great we did an analysis last year to say well how much of uk aviation emissions could be like electrified away with electric planes um on a meaningful time frame and that is between now and 2050, mm -hmm. right? Now, many would argue that this stuff needs to happen much sooner than that. But basically, anything that's outside of that window is, is not helping us, right? Now, um, passenger jets have operational lives of 30 years or more. Mm -hmm. And so Boeing and Airbus, the airplanes they make today, they have full order books for the next eight years. So the planes they're making in eight years' time will still be in the sky in 2050 when we need to be at a zero emission uh, global economy. And are they expecting to, they're expecting flying to go up and they're going to top up their fleet with electric planes? Is that what they're going to try and do? So they're massively expecting flying to go up. And when you actually look at, so so 
just to be clear, the UN body that is responsible for regulating aviation and is supposed to be in charge of coming up with a climate change solution for it, and they're called ICAO, they're projecting a trebling of aviation emissions between now and 2050, the point when the whole of the global economy is supposed to be at zero emissions. That is so much. <laughs> so what their plan is, is to, um, is to offset growth in emissions from 2020. So this would be a good thing to talk about. How do you offset growth and does it actually work? Um, how you do it is still being debated and what what is allowed to count is like a subject of heated debate in industry circles at the moment. But, you know, the more important question is your second one, well, does it work? And the answer is no. I mean, there, there, we've, we had years of a, a UN flagship offsetting scheme um, which, you know, you would think is the gold standard mm-hmm. um, because it's UN administered and accredited. It's called the Clean Development Mechanism. Um, an assessment of that scheme, 85% of the offsets sold under the Clean Development Mechanism did not reduce emissions at all. And can you explain for everyone uh, who doesn't know what offsetting is? Yeah, so the basic idea is that you're going to cause some emissions from something that are unavoidable in inverted commas and um, and to make up for it, you pay someone else somewhere else to reduce their emissions uh, by as much as the emissions you put into the atmosphere. I mean, it sounds shonky. Yeah. You're making a face. <laughs> um, it, it is shonky. It right? sounds There's- like you're just like dumping litter. Uh, somewhere and then just going down the park and picking up somebody else's litter. Yeah, well, not doing it yourself, but basically <laughs> paying paying into a fund that is supposedly is paying someone somewhere else to pick up some litter somewhere else. I mean, it, it it's the evidence is very poor that this works. Um, it's back on the scene at the moment. The government has been consulting on it. Uh, British Airways have just announced they're gonna, you know, they're introducing a sort of opt out offsetting thing, and. That's not because there's any evidence it works. Uh, we have actually tried it for some time now. It's an old idea and um, it, it doesn't work. So why do you think people are still continuing to get behind it? Because when faced with a choice between having to stop doing something people want to do and uh, and being offered a magical solution, people prefer the magical solution. Um even when it doesn't work. So what can we do if we aren't offsetting and there isn't a magic plane that's going to come and fix the problem? Well, so look, I'm not, I don't want to discount electric planes. Like I say, we did this analysis last year. We looked at how much of UK aviation emissions could be electrified away with electric planes. Basically, we will see quite soon electric planes for small, uh, small aircraft travelling short distances um, over difficult terrain. And that is, uh, that's, that's a good thing. So like the Highlands and Islands in Scotland, for instance, you know, a lot of those plane journeys are 20 minutes mm-hmm. and the communities that live on the islands are very reliant on those. We can we can use electric planes for those. You will not see an electric transatlantic, uh, you know, capable plane between now and 2050. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about 15 percent of our total UK aviation emissions could be electrified away with electric planes. So. Um, what can we do? Unfortunately, this is one of those areas where reality bites uh, with climate change. There isn't, you know, unlike with generating electricity, actually, wind and solar are the cheapest way to generate electricity now. They're cheaper than burning fossil fuels, right? That's fantastic. We, we have an alternative technology that is actually superior in almost every way to the dirty technology that it's replacing. So win-win. Wonderful news. Um, 
with planes, they're just that just doesn't exist. You know, for a lot of time they've talked about biofuels. That biofuels, you know. Richard Branson posed with a coconut. I remember very vividly <laughs> saying, "Oh, my planes are going to be Didn't powered with coconuts." Like millions of pounds for a magic. He fuel. did, and then he and then he took it back. <sighs> yeah, he quietly withdrew that. Um, yeah, it was like a billion pound prize or something. Um, but there were huge doubts. You know, basically, you can't buy biofuels are poison chalice. Um, they take up lots of land. Mm-hmm. They usually compete with food crops. Um, you know, so you end up feeding planes and starving people. Um, or, cut, or cutting down forest to plant biofuels, which is actually what's happened with the EU's biofuels directive for um, for road transport, is that, you know, we're cutting down jungle in Indonesia and planting palm oil forests. That is not good for emissions. It's not good for climate change. So they're just they're, they're, there is not a good technology solution to this. And so you are left confronting the awkward truth that you have to manage demand for air travel. Now, that's easier said than done. Yeah. And this is why politicians have um, run away from this for such a long time. Especially, as I'm imagining, you already said that the people who do fly is a very small pool of people. And as it's becoming available to more and more people, it feels a little bit sharky to say, well, we've been doing it for ages, but you now can't do it. Yes, absolutely. So there is a big there's a big justice question here and. Really, I think the aviation climate problematic is actually the sort of nadir of carbon inequality, right? It, it, it's it's the most egregious example of uh, inequity mm-hmm. in the whole climate justice picture because it's not just the case that hardly anyone will ever get on a plane. It's also that of the people who do fly, nearly all the flying is done by a very, very small cohort of people. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my idea for a frequent flyer levy came from going through department for transport passenger survey data and you know i knew that about half of us in the uk um don't fly at all in a given year Mm -hmm. but uk citizens are responsible for more international flights than the people of any other nation so what that tells you is that um the people who are flying in the UK, they must be doing an awful lot of flying. Mm-hmm. So that was, I started to go through the data and what I found was 15% of the population takes 70% of all the flights. 15%? 15% of us take 70% of all the flights. Now, the, the Guardian recently did a, um, a Freedom of Information request on the DFT um, to ask what share the 1% of the population <laughs> take. And it's about a fifth. It's about 1% of us taking a fifth of all the flights. Who are they? Yeah, who are they? Well, I've actually, I've gone back to DFT and I've asked them, what is the average income of people mm. in that group? They Ooh. certainly know the answer to the question. They haven't come back to me yet. So, um, What's your best guess? What do you reckon? Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be well over £100,000. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd probably be over 115. That's uh, mm. the last time, the last time we checked this. So those, the two strongest determinants of frequent flyer status are... Household income of one hundred fifteen thousand pounds mm-hmm. or more, which is when they stop they stop counting at that point, <laughs> um, and ownership of a second home abroad. I mean, it makes sense. This is logical, but it's really clear when you go through the data that the people who are taking all the flights are it's almost exclusively people at the top end of the income spectrum. So there are there are outliers, and there are small numbers of people in other income brackets that are also frequent flyers but it is overwhelmingly people in the richest five percent of the population 
that are in this group. So what would you count as a frequent flyer? How many planes would you have to take in a year? So normal travel behaviour by the British public is either zero flights, that's half of us, or one or two flights, that's mm. a, that's the other 35%. So, you know, 85% of us are taking zero, one or two. I would characterise that as normal travel behaviour by the British public. The remainder is frequent flying. And that is anyone taking three or more return mm-hmm. journeys each year. Mm. You know, that you're, you are basically, you are a frequent flyer if you are in that group. People at the top end of that, you know, so people in the richest 5% is something like 40% of people in that richest uh, 20th of the population are taking seven or more flights. That's true. I was even about to say seven. Yeah. You can see it's incredibly concentrated. Um, And we've actually actually just finished having a look at the very, very worst, uh, you know, the most egregious bit of this, which is, of course, private jet travel. Ah. Um, And... Just like owning a car, if you buy a car, it makes you much more likely to use the car when you, um, you know, you, you will choose to use a car for journeys that you used to make by so other you've means. So you bought your jet and yeah. now you're jetting everywhere. And so the people who own private jets, they just jet everywhere um, and have carbon footprints as a consequence that are hundreds and in some cases thousands of times the national average of the countries that they live in. So, um, you know, there was a study out a couple of weeks ago that uh, used used Instagram posts uh, to backcast, you know, to work out reverse engineer where celebrities had been. I love um, it. Yeah, yeah, it's a very clever piece of work. Uh, and yeah, I mean, they concluded they concluded that these people are putting hundreds and in some cases thousands of tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere. So how does a levy work on those frequent flyers? What are you suggesting? So my proposal, the proposal as as was in 2015, is first of all to scrap air passenger duty. Now, APD is a tax that is levied at UK airports on departing passengers. It has um, it was introduced because there are there aren't any other taxes mm-hmm. on aviation. So kerosene is untaxed by international treaty. So that's jet fuel. It's the only form of hydrocarbon fuel that you are not allowed to tax uh, as a national government. Um, because it doesn't we've, seem to make any sense. Why? It, do, it doesn't. It made sense in 1948 ah. when it was introduced. So that's, you know, in those days, um, civil aviation was a brand new industry. It was very exciting. Uh, you only had national carriers. There were only, uh, you know, a few passenger aircraft in the sky, actually, globally. And national governments just agreed that they wouldn't tax the fuel because they wanted this thing to work. They were encouraging it. Somehow, without anybody noticing, uh, they've managed to maintain this tax break for over 70 years. Which is really handy for them, I imagine. It's tremendously handy for them. And no no airlines would be profitable today if they were paying uh, tax at the same rate that British citizens pay at the pump when they refill their car. So you're saying we should scrap the APD tax that currently exists? Yeah, so scrap air passenger duty, it's set at a very low level. It's not high enough to affect demand. Give everybody one tax-free flight each year mm-hmm. um, and then introduce a tax at your second flight at quite a low level and then at a higher level for your third flight, higher again for your fourth and so on. That makes sense. So you have like a tiered system. Exactly. So it's a tiered system. And actually, it's it's got quite a lot in common with income taxes. Mm-hmm. You know, the marginal rates of income tax, this is how it works. You know, you don't pay any income tax on your first tranche of income. Um, and you only start paying it above a certain threshold. And then you above a next threshold, you, you pay more. And how has it been received by people? Well, 
interestingly, I mean, I guess uh, when I first had the idea in 2015, first of all, I recruited some peers from the environmental NGO movement who, you know, we've all been grappling with this issue for mm -hmm. a long time. Um, and being told by the airline lobby that, uh, you know, we hate ordinary people taking holidays and that's our, <laughs> our, our agenda is to, uh, is to stop people taking holidays. Um, and so people like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace were just relieved to find that actually that wasn't the case and um, and immediately got behind it. I also more widely, you know, some unions supported it, so TSSA and PCS um, and some other NGOs from outside of the green movement like the, the Equality Trust and the Tax Justice Network, you know, who recognised that at the moment, you know, the current situation is rewarding the very richest people in society mm -hmm. with very generous tax breaks for doing things that impose harms on all the rest of us. But it kind of stopped there. And the reason for that is that to support a frequent fly lever, you first of all have to have accepted that you have to have curbs on overall demand for air travel. And Back in 2015, this was not a widely accepted view, you know, and most people in the public, you know, when asked, do you think people should be able to fly as much as they want? Most people answered that question with yes. People didn't even want to talk about climate change in 2015. Mm -hmm. If you said climate change, they would run away. So have you noticed uh, uh, a behaviour change in flying more recently? So there has been a very striking, um, there's been a very striking phenomenon. It's called flug scam. Flug scam. I heard about this. Yes. The never, shame. The shame. shame. I've never shame, heard of yes. flug scam, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> it's, the, it's the bell ringing at the back of your head, following you around on the as you uh, go through the departure lounge mm. um, to your aircraft. And it's funny, the airlines like to call it flight shaming, the flight shaming movement, as if it's something that, campaigners or activists are doing to other people but but that's not it actually it's a swedish term that just describes as a, a feeling a phenomenon you know a feeling Yourself. that people have that, that themselves on boarding planes in the context of their awareness that there is a crisis around climate change and it existed actually before greta thunberg but she's kind of really popularized it she's just basically making all the other swedes look really bad and uh, as a consequence, you know, this isn't just a kind of um, a name, a word that's entered the Swedish dictionary, although it is. Um, it's also a measurable effect mm -hmm. on domestic flying within Sweden has dropped by 15% year on year. Wow. Uh, which is much, I should say, is much more effective in terms of emissions and mitigation than any of the technology solutions that have been proposed by the industry in all the time I've been working on this issue. So all we ever needed was an inner feeling of shame. What it's was it called again? Flugscam. Flugscam. There is there's a wonderful way which is called uh, the 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 analog of it is tagskrit, which is um, I'm probably saying that wrong for Swedish listeners. Um, sorry. sorry about that. Uh, but you're trying. That is train boasting. Um, which is uh, people people feeling great about how they took the train somewhere and then oh, um, you know it. bringing it up at uh, dinner parties and things. Um, I went to Inverness the other week and I was re I was so smug. We got on the train <laughs> and I was like, we're going to get on the train to Inverness. Actually, it takes seven hours longer than the plane. I was <laughs> so smug. <laughs> so um, so that you know what you can see there is a social effect is actually working is is you know it's it's starting to change socio-cultural norms around air travel to be aligned with what needs to happen around the climate crisis mm -hmm. now i think um you know this kind of voluntary 
approach on its own isn't enough. But if you look at the if you look at the trajectory of something like the ban on smoking, you know, what's happened with smoking in the UK? Um, it had become socially unacceptable to smoke in a restaurant mm-hmm. before legislation was introduced to ban that from happening, right? Mm-hmm. So these things, there's, there's, a, there's a complicated dynamic um, that plays out between w- what societies, you know, view their, their positions, public attitudes towards things and legislation to control those things. So the change is going to start to come from us flying less, talking more about it, and eventually once those behaviours are already on the way... Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. So we we've got a new initiative at Possible, um, which we just launched. Uh, we've got we, we soft launched it. Launches properly next month. Uh, called Climate Perks. Now that is an employer kite mark scheme that commits employers to offering their employees additional days paid leave each year to travel to their holiday destinations by train rather than by plane. Um, you know that. It's squarely targeted at helping to start to shift the social norms around this. Because mm-hmm. yeah, everybody wants an extra day off work. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and this is when you when you ask people, you know, actually, there is an enormous amount of overlap between people who report being extremely concerned about climate change and people who fly very very regularly <laughs> for leisure. Right? People who travel a lot are cosmopolitan people who are kind of tuned into world issues you know, typically, right? And so um, you have this enormous overlap, but one of the key barriers is, you know, the kinds of people who are in this frequent flyer group who are basically in the problem flyer category um, tend to be cash rich and time poor. Mm. You know, they tend to be in high high paying jobs um, with limited numbers of days leave. And, and you're so, only going for the weekend. You're going like, you're nipping to Barcelona, yeah. right? On like for a three day holiday. So you don't want to take the train there. Yeah, so people don't want to spend two days of their 20 days annual leave sat on trains. And that's a, you know, that's a legitimate view to take. Um, so this initiative, Climate Perks, is, you know, anybody can ask their employer to sign up to it. We've got some NGOs. I mean, we've got people, we've got companies interested now. We've got, you know, 150 companies interested um, and 30 employers are signed up. And it's, uh, you know, we've got universities looking at it. Um you know, as well as peers in the NGO movement who've introduced it already um, for their employees. So, yeah, I mean, I urge anyone listening to this that's worrying about this, ask your employer if they could sign up to Climate Perks. Um, Tell them that we made you badger your managers about yeah, getting extra days off. It'll be really popular. <laughs> I'll get the train, I promise. <laughs> I think it's, um, you know, one reason that employers are going, actually, this is attractive, is because they're all finding that they are having to demonstrate to employees and prospective employees, you know, for recruitment and retention purposes, um, you know, tell show millennials how they are aligned with their values. And, um, you know, that can be quite a difficult thing to do. And actually, this is like, you know, there's, lo- there's lots of research that shows that if you give employees more time off, they're more productive anyway. So, you know, it's not probably a cost to the business. It's ultimately. a win-win. It's a win-win. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming down and speaking to us. Cheers, Leo. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. You might be feeling your own fleek scam or flight shame after listening to that, but please don't worry. We're going to go into the future and find out what some of the alternatives are. So, Sarah, what does the future of aviation look like? 
There is some wild stuff going on in the future of aviation. Mm. The first one I think we should talk about is electric planes, which Leo touched on a little bit. Um, so the first electric plane has taken its flight. Really? Yeah. It's a really little plane. Uh, I think it can fit about nine people. Um, the good thing about electric planes is that it can be powered by renewables, mm-hmm. theoretically. Yeah. Um, so you could get your energy from wind and solar and then that plane would be carbon neutral. Um, but even if you couldn't, I found out that a little electric plane only uses $8 of fuel per 100 miles, whereas a normal little plane uses $400 of fuel. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a massive difference. It's huge. But how far can it go? So at the moment they can't go very far. Batteries oh. aren't big enough. Okay. That's the same problem they're having with a lot of stuff is that they can't store enough energy to carry planes long distances. So at the moment... They would be used for littler flights. They could probably do short, hour-long trips, but you're not going to be able to use them to get to New York. Okay, so electric planes are kind of out of the question for 2050, but what else are we looking at? Lots of other things. So aviation companies, people like NASA, the space people, are looking at how we can change the design of planes to make them more aerodynamic. Mm, Yeah. And make them more efficient. So your plane from London to New York would use less fuel because the wings are designed differently to mean there's less drag and that they're more fuel efficient while they're getting there. Okay, like what? how would you change the wing of an aeroplane? There are some mad ones. There's some ones that look like a box. So they make like a wind tunnel inside the wings. <laughs> Could you imagine just like looking up at the sky and just seeing a massive box? A big box. Somewhere the wings are shorter, but the body of the plane is quite thin and fat. Okay. So I assume that helps. I'm not a scientist. Like glide. Yeah, it's a gliding kind of plane. Mm. Um, and then there's some obviously sci-fi ones that have like bird wings on the end of them. and That would be terrifying. Yeah, really, really scary. And what t- kind of time frame are we looking at? So some of those planes are in production, um, but at the moment there's nothing that's actually flying and I don't know how soon that could actually be be in the sky and how much difference it would make is something else that people aren't really sure about. So at the moment, planes are quite fuel efficient. They're more fuel efficient than I've ever been. But I don't think that it's really tackling the heart of the issue. It's not good enough. Yeah, I think it's it's a good step and people should be doing it, but I don't think it quite meets what we need to be doing. Okay, so then what is the solution? Oh, what a question. <laughs> uh, it's difficult. There isn't really one solution and there's lots of different things people are discussing because just like leo says the first thing people say is well people still want to go on holiday and you don't want to be curbing people's choices and telling people to stop doing stuff it's a really difficult message to get through to people saying actually it's quite nice here in the uk (laughs) you should stay here instead you've been to western supermare it's lovely oh it's lovely (laughs) Um, High-speed rail is something that a lot of people are talking about. Um, So the first solar-powered trains are coming out. Nice. Um, In some countries, I think it's Germany, the solar-powered trains that they have are putting electric back into their national grid system. Um, So not only are they powering the trains, but they're actually providing electricity for other stuff as well. Wow. Which is very cool. Uh, And the idea would be that you could get a train from London uh, to, say, the middle of Germany, and actually it wouldn't take you that long. It would be solar-powered and eventually potentially cheaper than getting a plane, which is the big problem at the moment. I don't know if you've ever tried to get a a train instead of a plane. The Eurostar's quite cheap. It can be cheap. It depends on your book, I guess. If you're looking at trains to Central Europe, they're going to be more expensive than it would be for you to get a flight, which is another reason why people are saying, why would I spend 14 hours on a train if I'm going to miss a day of my holiday and pay more for it? It doesn't seem to make sense. So we need to convince CEOs... 
to give workers an extra day off so they can get the train instead of the plane. Get the train instead of the plane. I think that's the big thing that people are going to start pushing. Uh, and we're going to hopefully see more railway lines opening up that will connect a lot of Europe. Um, so I think they're looking at one that will get us down to Italy, to the right at the bottom of Italy, so oh, we can go... Lovely. Right? Um, but at the moment, it's a cost thing. And I think I can totally see it. If you're looking at a 40-quid ticket or a 100-quid ticket and it's going to take you 10 more hours to get the train... A lot of people aren't going to be convinced. Yeah, I mean, Eurostar is nice, though, isn't it? I love a train. I'm already sold. I'm converted. I get <laughs> so stressed out on planes as well. Why do like, you get stressed about? Because I don't want to be in the sky. I think it's weird. Yeah. It's unnatural. Just don't need to be that high up. So I guess what Leo is saying about rationing, which sounds quite scary, is maybe the answer. Now, when I first heard about it... I was a bit nervous that, you know, if my parents are on the other side of the world and maybe they get sick, I'm not going to be able to go and visit them. But that's not really the case, is it? Yeah, rationing is a really, really scary word. And obviously nobody likes it. Nobody wants to be denied something. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important when we're talking about flying that we're not saying people should not go and visit their family if they're on the other side of the world. Or we're not saying people shouldn't take that one flight a year for their summer holiday with their families and those aren't the people who are necessarily causing the biggest problems in the same way that a lot of the times they're not causing the biggest problems in the wider environmental movement. The behaviours that we've got to tackle are people who are taking a lot of planes. Uh, so that might be business people like who are flying all over the world or like Leo was saying, the person with the house who's <laughs> flying to and from it six or seven times a year, um, which is a behaviour that nobody's really looked at at the moment and really easy things can be done just by reducing the amount of planes you're taking in the same way that a lot of people talk about meat. We don't have to give it up altogether. No one's saying that you should stop doing the thing that you want to do, but can we think about consuming it in a more responsible way? Yeah, so I guess what we need to do is introduce like a word. You know how people who don't eat meat are vegetarians? Yeah! So people, people who don't fly can be like trainitarians trainitarians or if you take like if you fly a bit but you're trying to reduce you can be a flexi flyer yeah <laughs> yeah so i think that we really need to remove the shame element okay so i really want to go on holiday this year how can i do it in the most sustainable way yeah we're not saying that nobody should go on holiday because that would be super sad <laughs> and it's not all we're here to please <laughs> please don't to, go on holiday I need to get out of london <laughs> so if you are going on holiday and you're taking a plane uh there's some things that you can do so first up choose a direct flight if you're getting an indirect flight and you're say you're flying to athens on your way to vietnam that's going to use more miles so it's going to produce more carbon actually you just want to take a direct flight it's going to be quicker but also less carbon will be used so that's a win-win and the other one is the choice of seat that you pick i don't okay. know how fancy you are ross how fancy are you feeling today i am not very fancy you're not feeling business class fancy no <laughs> I've never flown business class. Then you are already doing your bit. Oh. So Why is that? Seats like the business class seats and the first class seats, obviously you get a bit more room, maybe you get a bed, they're taking up more space at the front of the plane. But what you want to do to make more efficient planes is to get as many people on as you can. So if you choose an economy seat, you're saving space and reducing your CO2. Just take yourself up for a nice meal when you get there. To uh, With the money you'd have saved. Exactly. So go cheap for the environment is what we're saying. 
Um, and then the last one about going on holiday and something which I am becoming a bigger advocate of after exploring the UK is to see if you can do a holiday in the UK or somewhere where you don't have to get a plane. Um, there are so many nice places that I've discovered. Where? Wales. I went to Wales. I went to Inverness and the Highlands. Inverness is nice. It's, Loch Ness. I saw dolphins in Scotland. Oh, Scotland's beautiful. It was amazing. And we didn't have to get a plane. It was super chill. Maybe it isn't even your main holiday. Maybe you're still using that plane journey to go somewhere hot that you really want to go to. But then for your little extra holiday, try somewhere in the UK. Mm. See if you can find somewhere you like. Where's your favourite staycation spot? I like Cornwall. Lovely. in the summer it gets quite tropical. How do you get to Cornwall? Uh, you just get a train. It's easy peasy. And easy. you can go surfing when you get there as well. <gasps> The dream. It's basically Australia. What other places are really nice? I went to a place in Wales where you could stand behind a waterfall. Basically Australia. That's lovely. So there you have it. Loads of nice places. You can go on holiday in the UK if you fancy it. And you won't be alone because one in five people have already cut the number of flights they took last year. Nice. Congratulations if that was you. And if it's not you, then join that one in five and, and start assessing how many flights you're taking. Jump in. And that's it. That's the end of the episode. We're going to be back next week when we're going to be talking all about milk. Milk and dairy. Milk and dairy. So I'm going to be travelling back to 10,000 BC to find out why we started drinking milk in the first place. We're going to be looking at the environmental impacts of milk. And can we please, please, Sarah, can we go visit a farm? We are going to visit a farm. Yes! We're going to go and visit Horton House Dairy Farm to find out what the future of sustainable dairy production will look like. So if you want to listen to that, and why wouldn't you, we'll be back next Thursday. Oh man, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us Five stars reviews. Five stars. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.